Once upon a time, as you know, I like stories. As I mentioned, uh, really that's all I'm doing is sharing with you stories, even when it sounds like I'm not sharing with you stories. So once upon a time, after about a year of uh, being ordained in the Zen tradition, I was... You know, I was practicing very diligently and earnestly. The, you know, I was really on fire with the practice. And um, I was young and gung-ho. And uh, during that time, I hit this wall in my practice after about a year. And it was actually a, a, a realization I had, the stark realization that my diligent practice that I'd been engaged in was being fueled by this sense of unworthiness, a sense of lack, really this, this sense of not feeling enough or really this kind of this theme of something's wrong with me. And it would be this dynamic, you know, it would be this dynamic of wanting to be the kind person or the mindful person. And then there would be that experience of strong mindfulness or continual kindness. But then, as you notice on long retreat, it goes away. <laughs> Doesn't that suck? And the mind's lost in thought, aversion, and boom, there I was, back in the sense of unworthiness. Like, damn it, this is, this is confirming, actually, that there's something wrong with me. This confirms that uh, I'm really not enough. Then I'd climb out of it again. I'd practice hard, start to feel good about my practice, feel like I'm getting somewhere. And boom, I'd have another unpleasant experience, the mind lost in thought or a lot of aversion. And again, it was this feeling, man, there's something wrong with me. Look at, I can't get anywhere in this practice. Some, sometimes, you maybe you've noticed this, you know, it can get set up with a pleasant experience of some sort. And then, and then there we are in the hamster wheel. And what was really fueling it was this thought that maybe if I practice hard, I can stop being a person who feels like they're not good enough and become someday someone who feels like they're good enough all of the time. But do you hear how much of a setup that was? It reminds me of this image that the Buddha uses in the Dhammapada of craving. He gives the image of craving being a rabbit caught in a snare and going round and round and round. Feels like that, being on a hamster wheel. And what I'm describing to you is really the, this flavor of becoming, trying to become somebody. And it can be quite extreme, but also can be quite subtle. And there's, there's all kinds of dimensions to it. And tonight what I'd like to share with you is reflections just on this dynamic of this feeling of not enough or this sense of lack and how to see it in this frame of that it's a particular flavor of trying to become somebody. And also uh, some possible ways to navigate it, some things you might want to bring into your practice. And really how navigating it really leads to the, the, uh, really a deeper sense, I think, of the unfolding of the Dharma. 
and I'm kind of mashing these together. I'm, I'm taking this, this idea, this kind of modern terminology of not feeling enough, feelings of unworthiness or feeling something's wrong with me. It all can kind of fuel this flavor of becoming that I described at the beginning of my talk. And I want to situate it in uh, something that Andrea shared with us a little while ago when she gave her, her uh, talk on dependent origination. Because what I'm describing is really, you could see, is, is an unfolding of those links that she went through. In particular, if we just take a, a snippet of it, of uh, it's the unfolding of contact. You know, uh, some experience happens, vedana, craving, to clinging, to becoming, becoming somebody. Then there's birth, there's a birth of somebody, and then death, and then a whole bunch of suffering. So how does this fit into uh, what I'm describing around this feeling of not enough? Really, it's what I just described to you. You have contact. You have that experience of maybe a sense of samadhi where the mind is concentrated. It's like staying with the breath. Wow, this feels so good. Or strong mindfulness. The, mind, the mind's really seeing what's arising and passing away. And it's pleasant. Have you noticed it's pleasant when practice is moving along like that? And then when it's pleasant, it's like, mmm. Good. I like this. What do we call that? Craving. <laughs> and then clinging. Sweet. This is really good. This is what retreat's about. Now I'm a good meditator. So now, now I'm, I've, I've been seduced by it. And then becoming. And it might not even be a thought, but it's, it's the feeling of what I just said. I'm a good meditator. I've been born into somebody. I'm starting to be born as someone. And then there's the birth. You awaken to be the good meditator. But then you probably know what happens. You die. (laughs) (laughs) And in this cycle, the death is so painful because then there's no more samadhi, there's no more mindfulness, and it hurts. And you're left feeling incomplete or feeling like not enough, a sense of lack. And it, sometimes it might feel the opposite. And I'm just pointing this out just so you can see the kind of the, the fluidity that we can have around this teaching of dependent origination. There can be, what we're trying to use it is to utilize it in a way that it fits with our experience. There's not like some kind of um, something written in stone of, of how we should understand it. But it could really be the opposite where there's, the contact of the mind lost in, thought, in a thought storm and the, the, the vedna, it's unpleasant. And the craving in the sense of, I don't want this. And then the clinging, I really don't want this. And then the becoming and the birth around, I totally suck at this. What the hell am I doing at Spirit Rock for a month? And you're left feeling incomplete and not enough and a sense of lack. And then it's true, when there's a death from that, it feels so good because then that's gone. But then what happens is you get born again. Dukkha. I think uh, Andrea sh- uh, shared this uh, quote about really this, this dependent origination the, 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 of how it's described. This dependent origination is deep and deep in implications. It is because of not understanding and not penetrating this Dhamma 
Ananda, that this generation has become like a tangled skein, just like I described, like a knotted ball of thread, like matted reeds and rushes, and does not pass beyond the plane of misery, the bad destinations, the netherworld, samsara. This is this is the this cycle of of becoming. And this wheel that I'm describing, this kind of hamster wheel that you might have also found yourself on at times that can really be fueled by the sense of lack, I want to point out that the wholesome or pleasant experience is not the problem. The aspiration for awakening, the aspiration to have strong mindfulness or have more con, uh, uh, kindness or something like that is, is really actually really quite important. It's how the mind's relating to it. Now we're here to skillfully nurture and savor the wholesome. The problem is, is, is we're not interested in beating ourselves up around it, and that's what can happen when it's fueled by a sense of lack. And it, it, it creates this kind of judgment. You know, we look around and it feels like everyone else is really doing the retreat other than me. Or it can be the opposite, which is really part of the same cycle. I'm doing so well, and all these other people, what are they doing here? They're not even taking this practice so seriously. You know, the better than and less than. It's, the, it's, it's this cycle. And hopefully you can hear how it gets projected outwards. It's not only how I see myself that there's something wrong with me, but sometimes when things are going well, it can feel like, oh, there's something wrong with them, with others. And we'll get into other dynamics around this. And I want to point out that, that this sense of lack can shape our understanding of awakening in really unskillful ways. And there's a uh, psychologist out of, uh, out of Harvard, um, Jack Engler, who's written quite a bit about this. And so I want to share with you one of his descriptions of, of how awakening's taken, how it's envisioned by a mind that's deluded by a sense of lack. He says, Awakening can be imagined as a heaven-sent embodiment of a core Western narcissistic ideal, which is a state of personal perfection from which all our badness, all our faults and defilements have been expelled, a state in which we finally become self-sufficient, not needing anyone or anything, above criticism and reproach, and above all, immune to further hurts or disappointments. Practice can be motivated in part by this secret wish to be special, if not superior. As he says, awakening will finally elicit the acknowledgement and admiration that have been lacking. Do you, do you hear how they can, we can set ourselves up this, this, this striving for perfection? to be a perfect person that doesn't need anyone anywhere, that, that finally gets the acknowledgement and the specialness that this mind is looking for. That is the theme of not enough. If you notice that, it sounds attractive, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be nice to be special and be above all those things, not need anyone? 
I do want to acknowledge, you know, some, some of you might be able to relate to this, uh, some of you might not be. But I think it's important to see this, how it, how it pervades how we even look at practice. And I, I do want to take some time to show how this never enough is, is really just so often can be a part of our inheritance, inheritance from family and society, you know, around these narratives around success and also what we get affirmed around. And there's a, uh, a great poem by um, Billy Collins that I think really, really hits upon this, kind of, the, kind of the subtle messages that we get from family and parents and caregivers. And the, the title of the poem is My Favorite 17-Year-Old High School Girl, High School uh, Daughter. And what I want you to imagine as I'm sharing this with you is that this is a parent, imagining this parent talking to their 17-year-old daughter. So this is what they, this parent's is saying to their, their daughter. Do you realize that if you had started building the Parthenon on the day you were born, you would be all done in only one more year? Of course, you couldn't have done that all alone. So never mind. You're fine just being yourself. You're loved for just being you. But did you know that at your age, Judy Garland was pulling down $150,000 a picture? Joan of Arc was leading the French army to victory. And Blaise Pascal had cleaned up his room. No, wait. I mean, he had invented the calculator. (laughs) Of course, there will be time for all that later in your life after you come out of your room and begin to blossom, or at least pick up all of your socks. (laughs) For some reason, I keep remembering that Lady Jane Grey was Queen of England when she was only 15. (laughs) But then she was beheaded, so never mind her as a role model. (laughs) You know, a few centuries later, when he was your age, Franz Schubert was doing the dishes for his family, but that did not keep him from composing two symphonies, Four operas and two complete masses as a youngster. But of course, that was in Austria at the height of romantic lyricism, not here in the suburbs of Cleveland. (laughs) Frankly, who cares if Annie Oakley was a crack shot at 15 or if Maria Callas, Callas debuted as Tosca at 17? We think you're special just being you playing with your food and staring into space. (laughs) By the way, I lied about Schubert doing the dishes, but that doesn't mean he never helped out around the house. (laughs) Those those subtle messages (laughs) we can sometimes get. But I also want to point out how, in some ways, this theme can be seen all around us societally. You know, first I want to talk about this sense of not enough, and then a little bit about this theme of, you know, something wrong with me. They they overlap, but sometimes a little bit different. You know, in in the U.S. here, there is such a, a, a collective dimension around not enough, never having enough. Right? So that's consumerism, never to have enough. So it fuels our economy. Never safe enough. You know, we have the, the largest military in the world. 
never safe enough. We have the highest incarceration rate in the world in this country. We can never be safe enough. And also on the collective dimension around this sense of something wrong with me. The images that we can so often get bombarded by and how it shapes the mind. Now, this is so much the case around body image. How these images that, that, that impact the mind and then shape really so often the sense of something's wrong with me. You know, they've, they've done studies with, uh, uh, I think mostly with teens, about this correlation uh, between the amount of time spent looking at, at fashion magazines and dysfunctional body image issues. It's really that, that exposure to these, these images of what a quote-unquote body should look like. And what does it leave? It leaves the sense that, oh, something's wrong with me because I don't fit into this quote-unquote picture that I see all around me. And of course, just as I was mentioning on the, the individual level, this, this sense that something is wrong with me can spill over to the systemic level of something is wrong with them. Because that's the flip side. This is what gets, gets really how the mind is shaped by this, what we're up against. And we see this around, around skin color. Now, there's a striking uh, story that uh, Desmond Tutu gave. You remember Desmond Tutu the, um, from South Africa, the, the Anglican uh, bishop, maybe cleric. And, and you know, uh, one, of, one of the uh, very important activists uh, during the anti-apartheid movement. And he shares, he was uh, on a plane, he was uh, flying up to Nigeria and he got on the plane and there were two black pilots. And he was like, this is so awesome. Like, here are these two black pilots. This is so exciting for me to have these pilots on the plane. You know, I'd, he'd never experienced something like that. So he's on the plane, flying to Nigeria, and they hit some serious turbulence in the plane. It was really uh, quite frightening. And his first thought, his first, first thought was, man, I wish those pilots were white. And I think to myself, if Desmond Tutu can have that kind of thought and his mind is shaped like that, here, me being this white guy living and growing up in this country, how can my not mind not be racialized? That's a crazy thought, don't you think? To think that this mind somehow is not racialized, somehow doesn't have those thoughts, isn't shaped from a really core uh, place of less than and more than in terms of skin color. Mind is society. If something is wrong with me on the systemic level leads to something is wrong with them. So I want to point out that, you know, I'll be talking a lot about how we're treating ourselves. That's what I started with. But it's so entangled with how we treat others. And it's so important to come to terms with such a mind that's been shaped by society, both of how we internalize ways that there's something wrong with me, or we internalize this, these messages about something is wrong with them. 
And it can be so quick around a body shape or the color of skin. And I found it so important for me to, to see that again and again and again. It's not just being kind of sugary kind to people who are different than us. It's actually seeing these dynamics so we don't carry forward such a society. Maybe one more thing about this. This is more of a subtlety. I, I think it's important. The, the reason I, I say that it's not just about uh, being the sugary pot kind, but, but seeing um, how the mind is functioning, how it's, for example, we've been talking about these things around intimacy and, and like, uh, uh, you know, that desire for another or, or Andre's talk around perception is seeing it so that the mind can become free of it. So we just don't create some kind of habitual pattern over it and don't see it. So for example, I remember one example of this, I was talking to someone who's a a, a Tibetan refugee who had uh, come over to the States, had um, gained asylum, was living in Santa Fe and working at a uh, grocery store. And he said to me, you know, there's only two ways people see me. Either they meet me and they realize I'm Tibetan, so all of a sudden I become this holy spiritual person, right? Or I'm just another person of color that they don't see who's packing up their grocery bags. So do you see, he only had two choices. He didn't have the choice to be a human being. And sometimes people felt like, oh, this is a way to honor somebody, to see them as some kind of spiritual being. But it's like, wow, they don't even see me. So it's, it has to be more, more refined than just let me be kind. It's about this intimacy that I was talking about last week, to touch, to touch another. So what we're doing here is so important, especially when we are just navigating our own, our own qualities around not enough or something's wrong with me, because it's so tied into these bigger, bigger pieces. But I also want to uh, point out how subtle this can be. Just looking at my thing. I promise we'll get to the good news pretty soon. <laughs> Hang in there. <laughs> but it can be so subtle. And Ajahn Sumedho, um, you know, a monastic from uh, the Thai Forest tradition, talks about this in terms of practice of how subtle this is, this quality of becoming. He says, when I started practicing meditation, I felt I was somebody who was very confused. And I wanted to get out of this confusion and get rid of my problems and become someone who was not confused someone who was a clear thinker, someone who would maybe one day become enlightened. That was the impetus that got me going in the direction of Buddhist meditation and monastic life. Pretty natural, don't you think? Maybe you have the same impulse. But then he says, but then by reflecting on this position that I am somebody who needs to do something, I began to see that it was a created condition. I began to see that I am somebody who needs needs to do something in order to become enlightened in the future was an assumption that I had created. That there was dukkha in this, actually. This very subtle sense of becoming.
And then he said, this, this assumption, I am somebody who needs to do something in order to become enlightened in the future. Just by recognizing this as an assumption I created, that, um, that was the end of it. So this is really the, our practice, isn't it? Is to begin to see these stories that come up in the mind and to see that it's just an assumption. Oh, here's a creation of what I carry, carry around with me. So a little bit more about this assumption and getting to the heart of it. Because really what underlies this sense of I am somebody who needs to do something in order to awaken in the future is the sense that practice has a beginning point, right? And then you travel, and then you travel and you practice, you come to a lot of retreats, lots and lots of retreats, and then you get over here finally, and then finally you're awake. You've become somebody who's no longer confused. And, and I want to point out, this is a, I love stories. As I told you, I'm just telling stories. I love the linear story, but it can be such a hook. Do you see how it can play into becoming? I'm somebody here and I'm going to get over here. That's what becoming's about. I'm somebody and then I'll become somebody else. It's all rooted in actually the sense of self. And it's these assumptions that get created around it that start to entangle the mind. So how to be free, how to be free of this dynamic, even at this subtle level. So a poem maybe is a gateway into this a little bit deeper. The name of the poem is uh, Waiting by uh, Lisa Lowitz. She begins, you keep waiting for something to happen. The thing that lifts you out of yourself, catapults you into doing all the things you've put off, the great things you're meant to do in your life, but somehow never quite get to. You keep waiting for the planets to shift, the new moon to bring news, the universe to align, something to give. Meanwhile, the pile of papers, the laundry, the dishes, the job, it all stacks up while you keep hoping for some miracle to blast down upon you, scattering the piles to the winds. Sometimes you lie in bed terrified of your life. Sometimes you laugh at the privilege of waking. But all the while, life goes on in its messy way. And then you turn 40 or 50 or 60 And some part of you realizes you are not alone and you find signs of this in the animal kingdom. When a snake sheds its skin, its eyes glaze over, it slinks under a rock, not wanting to be touched. And when caterpillar turns to butterfly, if the pupa is brushed, it will die. And when the bird taps its beak hungrily against the egg, it's because the thing is too small too small, and it needs to break out. And midlife walks you into that wisdom, that this is what transformation looks like, the mess of it, the tapping at the walls of your life, the yearning and writhing and pushing, 
until one day. One day you emerge from the wreck, embracing both the immense dawn and the dusk of the body, glistening, beautiful, just as you are. to emerge from the wreck from the wreck to embrace just as you are or in our terminology just just to touch this moment as it is this moment is just like this it's just seeing it it's just seeing the cycle that i was talking about just seeing that thought of, oh, I'm someone who's confused that wants to finally become someone who's not confused. It's just the seeing of it that leads to freedom. This is the just by recognizing this as an assumption. So how to recognize this as an assumption? Coming back to what we're doing, labeling it. Oh, that's thinking. That's a thought. Interesting. It's just a thought. It can be so powerful to start to see these these subtle, really subtle and pervasive assumptions as just thoughts that course through the mind. It's really just a story the mind has created about experience. That, That the practice unfolds in a kind of neat, linear way. I mean, again, I love the story. It just can be a hook. And what I want to point out is just seeing such assumptions as a thought puts me into contact with a really with a profound activity that we're engaged in that I want to talk about, but give a little bit different shift to it because it gave a little bit different flavor of, of practice. It's this simple activity of being aware. You have to acknowledge, at least I do, it's such a trip that here we are in the middle of the universe and there's this this activity of being aware that's happening. It feels so mysterious to me. It's so wild. That here we are, and here we are. That's this is what we're we're valuing together as being aware. John Samedo gives a I feel like a, a powerful practice around this. He says, really, a moment of being aware is really just this moment of the the Buddha knowing the Dhamma, or you could say Prajnaparamita knowing the Dhamma, or Kuan Yin back there knowing the Dhamma. That's that's the Buddha labeling. That's that's Prajnaparamita labeling. It points to the the simple the power of the simply noticing and how deep it can go. Because right? this idea that I'm aware, what a crazy thought, don't you think? I mean, how do we come up with that? You know, it's just a construct. We construct construct this notion of me. And then we paste it on to this mysterious thing of being aware. We, we believe in a self. And, and then we also believe in 
that experience kind of follows our language, like there's a subject and a verb. That's how things work. So I invite you to see what that's like, to get a feeling of, oh, this moment of feeling the abdomen rising and falling, the sound of my voice coming and going. That's the Buddha knowing the Dhamma in that moment, that you hear the sound of my voice arise and pass away right now. Right? The Buddha is just wakefulness. Wakefulness is happening right now. It's a delusion to think I am aware. There's something more accurate about that. Maybe you can get a feeling sense of that, that that's actually what's happening right now, is the Buddha's knowing the Dhamma in this moment. Or Prajna Paramita knowing the Dhamma. It's just tough, you know, it's tough to really get a sense of that. We, we sometimes aren't, don't have the capacity to take that in. So I invite you to play with this, this notion that that's what's happening when mindfulness is there. And I want to share with you again another story, because I like stories. It's just a story. But it fits in with this, I think, this notion, this feeling sense of the Buddha knowing the Dhamma in this moment. And it's a, a story from uh, the Lotus Sutra. And I want to just point out the Lotus Sutra is, is a is a Buddhist text that comes later on in, in Buddhism. It is not part of Theravada or early Buddhism from which we're teaching. So I'm, I'm taking something from later Buddhism. Um, but it's a great story, so I couldn't help it. I really want to share it. And uh, it, it, it shares a different story about the unfolding of this path. It's a parable. It's in chapter four of the Lotus Sutra. Once upon a time, there was a mother and a son. And this son's mother was of great nobility and great wealth. And the son, at a very, very young age, gets separated from his mother and ends up living in in other countries and wandering around and seeking food and work and shelter. Really, many, many years of struggle and After many years, the son, unaware of it, enters back into the country of his mother. And he's again looking around, seeking food and shelter and work. And his mother, from a distance, catches sight of her son and immediately recognizes him. Her heart is filled with such joy that, ah, here is is my lost son returning. And so she sends out a messenger to contact and bring him home. But his first thought is fear. I must have done something wrong. Here are these these messengers from this great woman of vast wealth and nobility chasing after me. I must run away. Maybe you hear that he too has this theme. Something's wrong with me. That's why they're coming after me, because something's wrong with me. He can't realize that he would be a, be a, a born of such nobility. And so the mother realizes, ah, oh, we need to have another approach. So what she does is she has one of her workers offer him a job shoveling dirt. And he accepts because he needs the money and needs some food and shelter. And he begins to work there on her lands for many, many years 
with the workers shoveling dirt. And she would sometimes come and dress in the clothes of the workers just to start to connect with them. And after many years, they start to have this connection, this real bond. And then it's only close to the end of her life before she dies that then she reveals to him that, oh, actually, you are my son. This, this, all of this wealth and this nobility is yours. This, this is your true home. And it is only then that he has the capacity to really realize, ah, this indeed is my true home. This is my birthright, this nobility and this wealth. Maybe that's what practice is all about, right? Is we're just coming home to our true home, our birthright of nobility and, and, and wealth around this activity of being aware. We don't have to become somebody. It's just realizing that it's just so difficult, you know, to have the capacity to take that in. Even when I share with you this, this practice of the Buddha knowing the Dhamma, sometimes it can shake us up in the sense of it just doesn't feel right. We want to run away like he did because something's wrong with me. How could that be the notion or the case? Well, this is really this teaching of Buddha nature that comes later on in Buddhism. To finally rest in this noble capacity of seeing clearly. So practically, when, it, when I sit... What I find is when I play with this, this, perspe- this perspective allows for a, a deep acceptance. It allows also a sense of beginning to simply rest in awareness rather than fighting to try to become somebody. It's a practice. As Alison Luterman says in one of her poems, she says, I am learning to rest inside the word enough. It's rough, leathery consonants. It's F of finitude. Can you learn to rest inside enough? And yet the trick here is to still put forth effort. This still requires effort moment after moment after moment, the willingness to be present again and again and again. But allowing it to disentangle from this quality of becoming. So how do we do this? So one one story about this. One way I played with this. I used to go to this gym in my neighborhood. It was a great gym. It was, the membership was $47 a year. Isn't that great? Good gym. You can imagine it was kind of a rough gym. And for me, it was definitely an experience because for me, it, uh, well, it was up against my male conditioning definitely there because all the guys there, it, it seemed like all of them, their arms were as big as my thighs. You know, just like, <laughs> they were talking about basketball, football, baseball, things I really don't know anything about. And uh, so it was this sense of intimidation. 
just the inability to connect. And so I put forth this aspiration. And it was important for me how I put it forth. I didn't have the aspiration to be a kind person. I had the aspiration to cultivate kindness. And I found this really helpful because sometimes when I'm cultivating to be a kind person, it can be a setup because then my mind looks for all the times where I'm not kind. Whereas if I'm just cultivating kindness, then every moment's pretty cool because I'm just planting those seeds. It's like, oh, wow, there's another moment. Oh, there's another moment. Nice. I'm just here as a servant for kindness. And it was so helpful, just those moments. It wasn't like I had to be kind or try to reach out the entire time I was in the, in the gym, but just moments of it. And it's so transformative. It was really sweet to begin to notice my system begin to settle and to really connect with really kind of a, a part of the male population I hadn't connected with a lot. It was great. It can really be that simple. And then another way that we can bring in that I think sometimes can be helpful around this, this uh, Buddha knowing the Dhamma and the feeling of this. And it's this sense that I, I told you this one story that we begin over here, a linear story, and then we kind of traverse, and then we get over here. You know, it's linear, and it, it progresses through time. It's a great story. It's the story of early Buddhism. We get on the raft and we go to the other shore. But sometimes for me, my mind gets so hooked by that that it's nice to have another story that might have another notion of how practice unfolds. Because remember, time is just a construct. That linear story is just a construct. I know we'd love to believe it. It's kind of the basis of how we see experience, but it really is it's just a construct. And there was, uh, again, this comes from later, later Buddhism, the uh, 13th century uh, Zen master Dogen, I think had maybe a, a mind similar to mine, at least this is what I imagine, and imagines practice unfolding in a different way, as a ceaseless cycle, a ceaseless circle, where everything is happening right now. There's no linearity of time. So he describes this. It is. It's kind of a trip, right? Because we don't think this way. He says, the great way of Buddhas and ancestors, which are kind of the lineage of practitioners, invariably involves unsurpassed, ceaseless practice. So it involves what we're doing here, this willingness to be present again and again and again. And he says, this, this practice rolls on in a cyclic manner without interruption. So it's, it doesn't go from here to here. It's just happening in a cycle. And he says, not a moment's gap occurs in a practitioner is giving rise to the intention to realize Buddhahood, the intention to awaken, happens right now. And they're doing the training and the practice. The doing and the training and the practice, when does it happen? Right now. And they're experiencing awakening. Where does experiencing awakening happen? Right now. In the realization of nirvana. For the great way of ceaseless practice rolls on just like this. So not a linear pro- progression. We're not getting anywhere. I put forth the intention to awaken. I put forth the intention to practice and I practice. 
Awakening unfolds right now. And all happens just right now. It's always coming back to right now. It's never getting anywhere. And of course, as he says, there are those who are realizing beyond realization, but it's always happening right now. What would it be like to practice with that story? Sometimes there's something very relieving about that. Sometimes it takes a lot of capacity to let go of our linear story. He describes this kind of meditation. Remember, it's Zen, so he's a little extreme. He says, the meditation I speak of is not learning meditation. I want to say learning meditation is a good thing. We're Vipassana here, but there's a good point here. Rather, it is the simple, it is simply the easy and pleasant practice of a Buddha. In our terms, it's simply the Buddha knowing the Dhamma, what I was talking about, that pleasant practice of a Buddha. And in that is the practice realization of totally culminated awakening right now. And in that practice, traps and snares can never reach it. And if you understand this, you are completely free. You are like the dragon when she gains the water, like the tiger when she enters the mountain. Just this practice of the Buddha knowing the Dhamma or Prajna Paramita knowing the Dhamma or Kuan Yin knowing the Dhamma. Moment after moment after moment, even in the midst of the mind being lost in thought. As he says, the meditation I speak of is not learning meditation. Rather, it is the simple, it is simply the easy and pleasant practice of a Buddha. It is the practice realization of totally culminated awakening. Traps and snares can never reach it. If you understand this, you are completely free. You are like the dragon when she gains the water, like the tiger when she enters the mountain. May our practice of coming to see this dynamic of not enough, this dynamic of becoming, allowing the heart to become free of that, may may that lead to the liberation of all beings. Let's uh, sit just for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.